hello and welcome back to the First Love Podcast. Um, my name is Kaylin and I am the host of this podcast as well as the founder of the First Love Movement. And um, it is so awesome to have you join back in as we continue our study on the seven churches of Revelation. Um, I hope that you have maybe had time to go back and listen to the previous churches that we have looked through. I know that Revelation is a, a strange, it's a strange topic because we either love it or we're weary of it. And um, I know that for many people, the book of Revelation is a book that we would rather just kind of stay away from. And I think in doing that, we miss so much of the richness and the goodness that Jesus is wanting us to know and understand firstly about himself, but like many, many other um, accounts in scripture, it helps us to know how to live right and how to live well before the Lord. And so if you haven't already, I would encourage you to maybe go back. We have done four of the seven churches and we are now coming into the last three churches in the book of Revelation and um, maybe take some time, grab a notebook, grab your Bible and um, allow the Holy Spirit to speak to you through these letters because they are powerful and I know for myself I've studied them extensively and I feel like every single time I study these letters there is something new that God reveals to me and I think that is just the beauty of the Word of God. It is alive, it is active, it is breathing and um, you know it, it always wants to give us fresh new revelation of God and so um, if revelation has been a a book that you've avoided and maybe intimidated or scared to dive into, I just want to encourage you and um, yeah, just dive in, take a leap of faith, dive into these churches. And um, I know that I know that God will definitely speak to you um, through these letters. Let's dive into the church of Sardis. This is the dead church. And um, like every letter, I wish I could choose a favorite. I can't choose a favorite, but um, the Church of Sardis is definitely, definitely up there for me because I think it is uh, an incredible encouragement. It is a, an incredible um, wake-up call, really. And so I pray that you would be blessed by this letter. So let's dive in. So like all the other churches, the Church of Sardis was a church that was part of Asia Minor. Um, which is today modern-day Turkey. As I mentioned maybe in one of the previous episodes, the Roman Empire was the reigning empire at the time that John was writing these letters or that John received the revelation from Jesus while he was on the Isle of Patmos. And um, Rome was huge. It extended you know, far into what is now modern-day Turkey, down into Africa, across even into England and up through Europe. So the Roman Empire was massive. And the seven churches that Jesus addresses in each of these letters are all located in what is now modern day Turkey. I don't know if you've picked up on this, but um, the churches that we've looked at over the last few weeks have all been from pretty wealthy, pretty big, pretty affluent cities. And the church of Sardis, well, the city of Sardis was no different. Sardis was an important city for trade. And so you can imagine that this actually creates an incredible opportunity for believers to spread the gospel of Jesus Christ to the far reaches of the known world then. You know, if boats and 
tradesmen were coming in and out of the city um, to gather goods and then go back out. This was an amazing opportunity for the church to be able to sit there and share the message of Jesus Christ so that people would find Jesus and come into relationship with him and then go out and take the gospel with them. So Jesus was so smart, I think, in where he allowed churches to be established. Because if we remember Matthew 28, the great command was to go into all the world and preach the gospel of Jesus Christ. And so I love that Jesus is very strategic. And, you know, he he gives us these amazing um opportunities really he creates opportunities for us to further his kingdom and to further the message which i just love so the the city of sardis was a rich city a trade city and unfortunately for the city of sardis it had already started its decline so we are really at the kind of end of the the heyday for this city when John is writing to this church. And Sardis was known as a city for easy money. So if you wanted to strike it rich and strike it lucky, you would go down to the city of Sardis because that is where you could really, really make quick, fast money. Sardis was actually the first city that minted coins and started to use coins instead of bartering for goods. And this was under their king, King Croesus. I think that's how you pronounce it. Um, Sardis had a reputation. Reputation is a key word here. Sardis had a reputation for apathy and immorality. So apathy is really just, meh, you don't really care about anything. You're apathetic towards things. Mm, you have no real emotion towards anything. You don't really feel anything. So this is a city where easy money plus loose morals made for very soft, pleasure-loving people. I'm going to say that again. Easy money plus loose morals makes for soft, pleasure-loving people. And this is the church of Sardis. This is the city of Sardis that Jesus writes this letter to. And so as in all the other letters, Jesus starts this letter by introducing himself. And he introduces himself to each of the churches by taking a phrase that is found in Revelation chapter 1, which is when John sees Jesus for the first time in this vision. And um, Jesus reveals himself to John as not just his best friend, Jesus, but Jesus reveals himself to John as the reigning king, the son of God, the king of kings and the Lord of lords. And so each of the introductions that Jesus uses to describe himself is taken from this, from Revelation chapter one. And so to the church of Sardis, he says this, these are the words of him who holds the seven spirits of God and the seven stars. Now you can jump back into the very first episode of the series of Revelation that we've been doing for a little bit more of a detailed, in-depth understanding of each of these, um, each of these descriptions that Jesus uses and the imagery and the symbolism. But basically what Jesus is saying to the church of Sardis is this. If we keep in mind that scripturally, the number seven represents completeness or fullness. Jesus is reminding the church of Sardis that he, Jesus, is the fullness of the spirit. Now, I know that that's a bit strange. And I remember the first time I read this and was studying this, I was like, the fullness of the spirit. That is so strange. And this is taken from Isaiah chapter 11 where Isaiah actually through an incredible revelation that God gives him is actually made aware of and 
um, is given a revelation of the seven attributes of the Spirit of God. And this is just like God. I love this. You know, there are so many facets to God. God reveals himself continually through the word of, through the, through the scriptures. God reveals himself in a million different ways. And yet still we will never understand the fullness of God. You know, every time Jesus revealed or God revealed a new name, when he revealed himself as Jehovah Shalom, Jehovah Rapha, Jehovah um, Nissi, he was revealing different elements of himself so that we could better understand God. And yet still, I don't think we will ever fully know and comprehend the fullness of God. And so just like God, the Holy Spirit has different attributes and layers to himself. And the seven layers to the Holy Spirit or the seven attributes to the Holy Spirit are these, that he is the Spirit of the Lord. And this ties in beautifully with the, the reality that we serve a triune God. They are three in one. And so God is the Holy Spirit and the Holy Spirit is the fullness of God. Holy Spirit is not a lesser being. He is not kind of pushed to the side. They are one and the same and they serve equally and beautifully. And I know that even I kind of, my brain sometimes just feels a little overwhelmed when I'm trying to think about it. And, you know, I've tried to explain this to my eight-year-old son and he just shakes his head. He's like, I get it, but it's so confusing. And um, I think this is, again, something that we'll really only understand when we get into eternity and we can really understand the triune God. So the Holy Spirit is the spirit of the Lord. He is the spirit of wisdom. He is wisdom. And the book of Proverbs talks about wisdom so beautifully. And, you know, we think about King Solomon, who when he took the throne, God said to Solomon, ask anything and I will give it to you. And of everything that Solomon could have asked for, he asked for wisdom. And so Solomon was actually asking for the Holy Spirit. And we serve a God that if we pursue him and we ask for him. He is a good father. He's not going to withhold from us. And he will especially not withhold when we ask for wisdom. And so the Holy Spirit is the spirit of wisdom. The Holy Spirit is the spirit of understanding. He is our counselor. He is our guide. He gives us understanding of God, of the word, of everything. And so that is why it is so important that we invite the Holy Spirit into our lives to partner with us and to walk this life with us. I could not live a day without the Holy Spirit. So the Holy Spirit is the spirit of the Lord. He is the spirit of wisdom. He is the spirit of understanding. He is the spirit of counsel. He is our counselor. You know, Jesus said to the disciples that I must go, I must go so that one, because one who is coming, he is your counsel, he is your guide, and it is the Holy Spirit's role to counsel us through life. And you know, sometimes we go through really hard, difficult seasons, and you know, I wish it was different, but the Holy Spirit is not always going to manifest himself and give us all the answers we need in the worst seasons of our life. But I know speaking from my personal experience, whenever I have looked back over seasons that have been really difficult and valley seasons that I've had to travail, I cannot look at those seasons without also recognizing the faithfulness of the Holy Spirit who journeyed with me. He is the God who walks us through the valleys of the shadow of death. And so the Holy Spirit is the spirit of counsel. He is the spirit of might. 
It is not by our strength, but it is by the Spirit of God that we can face victories and overcome challenge and triumph in Jesus Christ. So He is the Spirit of might. He is the Spirit of knowledge. He is all-knowing. He is amazing and he knows everything and that's why you know so many people it breaks my heart they run to a million different things when they're in seasons of desperation and need wisdom and guidance but just run to God because he is the Holy Spirit is the spirit of all knowledge and he is the spirit of the fear of God you know this is not about us being afraid of God it's us having a reverence for God when we have a revelation of just how sinful we are compared to how holy he is, we cannot just come flippantly into his presence with our list of demands. You know, it's it's such a hard and fine balance because at the same time, he is a God who wants us to come to him and share every detail of our lives. And he's a good father and we should go to him and be able to feel like we can just be ourselves, but not in a disrespectful, rude, demanding way. God wants us to understand the reverence that he deserves. So Jesus is saying to the church of Sardis that he is the fullness of the spirit. He encapsulates all of that and more. And then he is the God who holds the seven stars. You know, the scripture says that in Revelation chapter one, the seven stars represent the seven angels of the churches. This is referring to the leaders of the churches. So he holds the leaders of these churches in his hands. And so what Jesus is saying to the church of Sardis is that he is not just the fullness of the Holy Spirit, but he is the completeness of the church. Jesus Christ is the completeness of the church. We are so grateful for amazing leaders and pastors who lead churches. I cannot imagine what a hard job it is to lead a church, especially in this day and age. But I would say that as amazing as our leaders and our pastors and our ministry teams are, we are nothing without Jesus because he is the fullness and the completeness of the church. Similarly to the church of Ephesus, when they forgot their first love, when we forget that Jesus is the completeness of the church, when we make church about us, our agendas, what I like, what's comfortable to me, when we make ourselves the center of the church, we are completely missing the mark and completely missing the very fact that Jesus is the head of the church. It is his body. He's in complete control. He possesses the fullness of the church and he has invited us to co-labor with him. We are the co-pilots. We are the co-laborers. We're not in charge. And it's our responsibility as leaders and as pastors and as anyone in any capacity of ministry to partner with Jesus. We're not the ones who are driving. We are driving with him. And so we have a responsibility to allow him to lead and direct and guide us. And when we start to think that we can do it all in our own strength, we have completely missed the point. So Jesus addresses the things that are going well within the church of Sardis. And he says, I know your deeds. And that's basically where he ends it. I know your deeds. He knows that they have a name and he knows that they have a reputation. And that's where he ends it. The problem with a reputation is this. A reputation sticks with you. So if you have a bad reputation, 
It's really difficult to shake that. We've all heard the expression, first impressions last. And unfortunately, it's really difficult. If you get a bad reputation, you have to really work hard to build people's trust and to get them to be able to change their thoughts about you. This is not necessarily the case for the Church of Sardis. With a reputation as well, what you want to hope is that your life marries up to the reputation that you're portraying. So if you have a reputation as someone who is generous, then you want to actually make sure that your life is matching that, that reputation and that you are a generous person and that you are not tight-fisted and that you are willing to help people in need. If you have a reputation for being someone who's super friendly and happy and amazing, you want to make sure that your life actually marries up to that and you're not grumpy and rude and closed. You want to make sure that especially when you have a good reputation, that your life matches up to that good reputation. The Church of Sardis had a reputation and it was a great one. This is the type of reputation that I want as a person. I want to have this reputation as a church even more so. The Church of Sardis had a reputation of being alive. And this is what every church would want to have a reputation for. We don't want dead churches. We don't want churches where people are just sitting, bored, falling asleep. We want churches that are not tickling our ears and making us feel good, but we want churches that are alive and breathing life into us. We want churches that are challenging us with the word. We want churches that are alive in Jesus Christ. This is the reputation of the church of Sardis. But then as quickly as Jesus um, points out the things that are going well, so he also challenges the church of Sardis. And this is where it takes a little bit of a turn and it's quite devastating actually for this church. But despite looking very much alive on the outside, the church of Sardis was dead on the inside. Jesus, he is all-seeing. He is all-knowing. We cannot hide anything from Jesus. We just can't. You can't hide anything from him. Just so that you know, you can't hide anything from the Lord. And so he sees them for what they truly were. And he sees them for having the appearance of godliness, but without the power. I want to read a verse in 2 Timothy. And this is Paul writing to Timothy. And um, he is trying to explain to Timothy what 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 should we look out for you know when we're kind of towards the end and maybe Jesus is like a lot closer what what is life going to be like what are people going to be like and paul writes this he says there will be terrible times this is second timothy chapter 3 verse 1 and 2 he says there will be terrible times in the end in the last days people will be lovers of themselves lovers of money they will be boastful proud abusive disobedient to their parents ungrateful unholy without love unforgiving slanderous without self-control brutal not lovers of the good treacherous rash conceited lovers of pleasure rather than lovers of god having a form of godliness, but denying its power. Can you even imagine that? Now, think about this. Paul is writing this to Timothy. 
and John was writing this letter on the Isle of Patmos. Paul is writing to Timothy, John is writing to the Church of Sardis specifically, and two things that really stood out to me in this verse that in Timothy was that they will be lovers of pleasure rather than lovers of God. Now remember what I said, Sardis was easy money, loose morals, soft, pleasure-loving people, where life becomes about what I want. That doesn't make me happy, so I'm not going to do it. You know, Jesus encourages us as his disciples, as his followers. He said to his disciples, if someone asks you for your cloak, give them your shoes as well. If someone asks you to walk a mile, go another mile. And we've kind of come to this place in in our culture where, yeah, going the extra mile doesn't really quite work for me. I'm sorry, I've got to put up a boundary. And yeah, no. And I get that. We do have to put up boundaries because the reality is people will take advantage of us. And I think it's important to make sure that we're looking after ourselves, but not to the extent that we are not obeying what God has asked us to do. And he's asked us to love people. That's the command, love people. That means sometimes we have to be put out. It means that sometimes we will be uncomfortable. It means that sometimes it's not going to feel good. It means that sometimes it's not about pleasure for ourselves, but it's about obedience to our Father. So, um, you know, that was something that I just thought, wow, that is literally the Church of Sardis. And then secondly, Paul says, having a form of godliness, but denying its power. Having a form of godliness, but denying its power. Looking on the outside like it's amazing. Yes, we love the Lord. Everything's going well. But inside, it doesn't really work for us. We're not really that committed. This is what Jesus is kind of addressing in this church. And I dare say addressing in us today. One of the things that I wrestle with personally is that Jesus said to his disciples that you will do greater things than I did. Jesus raised the dead. Jesus raised himself from the dead. Jesus healed the sick. He healed the blind. He healed the lame and the crippled. He healed people. He, he was amazing. I literally am not even seeing myself healed when I have a common cold because it's easier for me just to get into bed and um, go for a nap. And so I challenge myself in this. I don't want just the appearance of godliness without the power. I think more and more we need to be the church that is alive with the spirit of God and walking in the power and the authority that we have that is ours through Jesus Christ. I want to see signs and wonders. I want to see miracles. I want to see the dead raised. I want to see the sick healed. I want to see brokenness restored and lives restored and redeemed. This is how we should be living and this is how we should be walking. And, you know, as Jesus is addressing the church of Sardis, it reminded me a little bit of when Jesus um, rebuked the Pharisees. And you can read about this in Matthew 23 from verses 25 to 28. And I just always think, you know, to to those who think Jesus was just sweet, meek, and mild, he was amazing, but Jesus never hid the truth and he wasn't afraid to speak truth, but he spoke it in love. And when you read scriptures, sometimes I'm like, 
gosh, Jesus, you were brutal. This is Jesus speaking to the Pharisees. This is the leaders of the synagogues and the temple. These are the priests. These are the ones who are teaching Israel. And this is what Jesus says to them. Woe to you, teachers of the law and, the Phar and Pharisees, you hypocrites. You give a tenth of your spices, but you have neglected the more important matters of the law, justice, mercy, and faithfulness. You should have practiced the latter without neglecting the former. You blind guides, you strain at a gnat but swallow a camel. Woe to you teachers of the law and Pharisees, you hypocrites. You clean the outside of a cup, but you, uh, sorry, you clean the outside of a cup and a dish, but inside they are full of greed and self-indulgence, sorry. Blind Pharisees, first clean the inside and then clean the outside. Woe to, no, sorry, that's not even what it says. <laughs> Blind Pharisees, first clean the inside of the cup and dish, and then the outside also will be clean. Woe to you teachers of the law and Pharisees, you hypocrites. You are like whitewashed tombs. You look beautiful on the outside, but on the inside, you are full of bones of the dead and everything unclean. In the same way, on the outside, you appear to people as righteous, but on the inside, you are full of hypocrisy and wickedness. Oh my gosh. I do not want to be lumped in with the Pharisees and the teachers of the law who look like everything is great. You have the appearance of godliness without the power. You live like a righteous person, but you are a hypocrite because you are not actually outworking anything that God has asked you to. I love the first example that Jesus says to them. He says, you're faithful to give your tithe. You give a tenth of all that you have, but you neglect the law that says, look after the poor and the widow and the needy. What good is it to bring your tithe if you literally don't care about people? And so Jesus likens the Pharisees as well to a cup, a dirty cup. I'm thinking like a coffee cup. You know, when you let it sit for maybe a day or two and it has the, the, the stain, the ring, and you're, you're so busy scrubbing the outside of that cup and you're neglecting the inside. No one wants to drink from a dirty cup. Again, you look the part on the outside, but inside you're dirty and you're, you're, you're kind of just gross. The problem with something dead is that it's done, it's finished. You know, we obviously see many accounts in scripture and you hear stories of people being raised to the dead, from the dead, sorry. But more often than not, when someone dies, that is it, that's it. You've lived your life, you've done everything, you, you know, that's it, no more chances. And Sardis aren't doing any good despite their appearance. They don't pose any real threat. I don't know if you noticed this, but there's no mention of any kind of persecution, whether literal persecution or spiritual, um, physical or spiritual persecution. There is literally no mention of the enemy in this letter. And that's not really such a great thing because it means that they're really not making much of an impact. They're not impacting their city enough for the enemy to actually come in and try and stop what they're doing. This is a very scary place to be in. Not worthy of being attacked by the enemy because of your ineffectiveness. I'm gonna say that again. This is a terrible, scary place to be when you are not worthy enough to be attacked by the enemy. 
purely because of your ineffectiveness. The reality is that we are not always going to be under attack from the enemy. That is just completely crazy to think that our entire life we're going to be under attack. So if you are not under attack at the moment, if you're not feeling like there is a strain, there is a struggle, there is a giant or a battle that you're facing, that does not mean that you're ineffective. So obviously God in his kindness allows us to have seasons where it's just rest and everything is great, those mountaintop moments. And I pray that you experience those mountaintop moments with Jesus and in your relationship with him. And you know, we will then walk through the valleys and this is the ebb and flow of life. And it's just the nature of our walk with God. Jesus himself said that it's not gonna be perfect. If the world hated him, they're bound to hate us too. And this is not the world hating us because obviously we wrestle not against flesh and blood, but against powers and principalities. The enemy is always wanting to stop the advancing of Jesus's kingdom. And so if you're not being attacked by the enemy, this does not mean that you're ineffective. For the church of Sardis, this would most likely have been that for a long duration of their existence, they were not being effective in the way that God had purposed them to be. And therefore they were not under any attack from the enemy, especially when you consider the climate of this era and this time where Christians were always under persecution and threat of loss of life. And um, it's just a bit strange that they had nothing going for them in that regard. So Jesus, beautiful Jesus does not just rebuke them, but he actually wants us to succeed. He wants us to succeed. And so Jesus gives us the answers. He tells us what to do. I love this so much. And I'm like, Jesus, where were you when I was writing my finals? Like, why could you not have given me the answers then? But he gives us the answers for life because he wants us to succeed. He wants us to flourish. He wants us to get over the finish line, um, you know, just faithfully and still standing. And so to the church of Sardis, the first thing he tells them to do is wake up, wake up. Remember they are dead inside. They are dead. Wake up, wake up. This means be alert, be watchful. Even in this state for the church of Sardis, even in the state of being dead on the inside, there is still hope because while there is breath, there is life. And while there is life, there is hope. So they are fading out, they are sizzling down, but God is like, it is not too late for you to actually breathe fresh wind and actually finish what you started and finish it well. So it is not too late for the church of Sardis. Their works, though they are good, were not complete. I love this, that Jesus actually tells them, he says, your deeds are unfinished. There is still something that God has for them to do. You are not finished with what he has called you to do and he wants you to finish strong. This is probably one of my biggest um, fears. I hate saying fears, but this is probably one of my biggest fears in life is getting to heaven one day, getting to eternity and realizing that I did not finish all that he had accomplished for me to complete. And um, you know, I just, uh, I think we need to constantly be pursuing Jesus, constantly be alert and awake to what the Spirit of God is telling us so that we don't miss our assignments. And you know what? Our assignments are not always these big, grandiose things. Sometimes it's a simple act of obedience that no one will ever know about. 
an encouraging word, a kind gesture to a stranger, but God wants us to complete it all. And so for the church of Sardis, they had not completed what God had set out for them to do. And he is saying, wake up so that you can finish what I have called you to do. And so um, remember, they looked the part only. Our works can't just be a tick, on, a tick in the box. You know, when we do something, tick read my Bible, tick said a prayer, tick da da da, tick went to church. That's not enough. Our works and going to church and reading your Bible and praying shouldn't be a work. It shouldn't be a labor. It's something exciting that Jesus wants to meet with us every day. He wants us to experience his rest. He wants us to be with him every day. And so they shouldn't be a tick, tick the box experience. Our works actually need to be genuine from a place of love and rooted in a firm foundation with Jesus. If you see someone in need, it shouldn't be like, ugh, there's someone who needs my help, fine, tick, oh, and then on social media telling everyone. Our works, our helping of strangers, our meeting the needs of others, it should be genuine. And as long as God sees, that's all that matters. I don't want praise and accolade here on earth because I want my reward between me and my father, an eternal reward that is going to actually be way better than a pat on the back here on earth. So wake up, Sardis. Wake up, Sardis. And I just want to say if any of you are listening and you kind of have felt in that space where you're like, you know what, like I, I go to church and I read my Bible and I do all the things that I know I'm supposed to do, but on the inside, oh, I'm not feeling it. Like I'm just, you know, COVID really took it out. It changed everything and I'm feeling a little dead on the inside. Can I just remind you where there is breath, there is life and where there is life, there is hope. And in the same way that God wanted to breathe fresh life in the church of Sardis so that they could finish well and finish strong. So God wants to do the same with each one of us. And if you are feeling discouraged and despondent, if you are just feeling like in a space of apathy, can I encourage you? The only person that can truly, truly bring transformation to that feeling and that space that you're in is the Holy Spirit. Go to the Holy Spirit, sit with him, just sit in his presence and allow him to completely transform your heart, your thinking, your mind and breathe fresh life and hope into you. So wake up. Secondly, the Lord says to the church of Sardis, remember, remember, you know, all throughout the Old Testament, when God would do something incredibly miraculous for Israel, he would ask them to actually establish or set up a monument. This isn't like a weird pagan altar thing. This was to act as a reminder so that when you were going through seasons of, oh my gosh, like how are we going to do this? You know, I was reading in my Bible just this morning in my own quiet time when the children of Israel crossed over the Jordan River into the promised land. And um, they cross over miraculously. God parts the sea as, in the same way that he did for the Red Sea. He parts the sea and they cross over. And then God tells Joshua to build a monument. This was because they were about to enter into the promised land, which was about to give them a million different challenges and battles. And, you know, they had to possess the land. They had to actively possess the land, which was going to be difficult. And so God tells Joshua to build a monument so that when time was going to be difficult, when they were going to face hardships that seemed impossible, 
they could look at the monument and be reminded of the faithfulness of God that they had seen in their life. Remember, many of the people that crossed over the Jordan River into the Promised Land would not have been at the Red Sea. And if they were at the Red Sea, they would have been very, very little. Because remember, God killed out that whole generation. And so God was showing this generation how faithful and how, how trustworthy he was. So God says to the, to the church of Sardis, remember, remember what you have received from me when you first came to me. This is such a, a great challenge to all of us because as we journey with God, sometimes it can seem difficult and we go through different seasons and it can become laborious and it can become just monotonous even. But God is challenging us to remember, remember what it was like when we first met him. Remember how we felt. Remember how amazing it was. Remember that revelation when you first had that revelation of what Jesus had done in your life that he had radically saved you and rescued you and redeemed you and that we could be friends with God and spend eternity with him. Remember the joy and the excitement that we had when we would come into church and, you know, even if they weren't even singing the songs we liked, we would worship with everything that we had. And even if we didn't understand the message, we were so excited and you would just take notes. Just being in the presence of God, being in his house, gosh, it was such a reward. Remember what it was like when you first came to Christ. We can often downplay it, but we have received the word of God. This is amazing. Like I often think about the fact that, you know, when the disciples were walking the earth and the early church, they didn't have the word of God. They didn't have pages upon pages that they could read back and be inspired and encouraged. You know, when um, during the era of the judges or, you know, all of the different parts of history in the Old Testament, they didn't just have a concise book that they could read and be reminded of God's faithfulness and see how he would be so faithful. We have been given the most precious gift in the word of God. And so maybe the church of Sardis had neglected the word. Maybe they had neglected the law. Maybe they had, maybe they had neglected the stories that had been passed down that showed and detailed and explained the faithfulness of God. But this would make sense to me as to why they were dead and dying, because it's the word of God that is life. The word of God is life. It is our daily bread. So if you stop eating for a few weeks, you're going to feel half dead, and you will most likely lose strength. You will, you will, yeah, start to start to die, and so it's from a spiritual perspective, it makes sense that possibly the church of the church of Sardis had started to neglect the word, and the word back then would have been the law and the stories of the gospel and Jesus that had been passed down and the letters that had been circulating from Paul to all the different churches, and so it is imperative for us. It is absolutely imperative for us to hold tight to the word of God and treasure it as though it is our very breath because spiritually speaking, it is. And I just feel there are so many um, malnourished and undernourished believers because unfortunately, no matter how amazing our church services are on Sunday, and I feel so blessed because the church that I am in, it's like, every Sunday, I feel like my heart is being 
excavated and like every week I'm under heart surgery and it's just the pure unadulterated word of God but that's not enough for me because I have to live Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday, Friday and Saturday and so for all of us whether we're in amazing Bible believing churches or not it is my responsibility to spend time with the Lord by myself and actually feast on his word for myself and so wake up Wake up, Sardis. Remember, Sardis. Remember. And then, to ev- like we have seen this in most of the other churches, Jesus reminds them to repent. Repent, Sardis. Repent. Because you have lived a hypocritical life. You have lived a life where your actions and your deeds and your words have not married up. So repent. We... Um, You know, I have mentioned this over the last couple of weeks and repentance is such a critical and pivotal part of our belief and our faith. And I don't believe for a moment that repentance is just a one-off when we receive Jesus. Yes, it is that. It is that. If we confess our sins and, you know, declare with our mouth that he is God, we will be saved. But repentance is... It has to be a daily exercise. It has to be a daily thing where every day we come before the Lord and we kind of take stock of our day and we kind of just allow the Holy Spirit to point out and reveal things that, okay, I did that wrong and I'm so sorry, God. I'm so sorry for relying on my own strength instead of trusting you. I repent. I repent. Repentance is beautiful. Repentance is amazing. And so many Christians are offended at the thought of repentance because it just offends me that you would think that I am a sinner. Well, the Bible says that you are. We are all sinners. For all have sinned and fallen short. And so repentance is an amazing gift that God gives us. That any moment, every day, whenever we fall short, and that's, you know, a million times for most of us every day, at every moment, we can boldly and humbly come before Jesus, repent of our sins. And this is what God asks the church of um, Sardis. Don't just say, oh, I'm sorry, and go back to the way you were living. But understand at a deeper level where you are falling short. Allow the spirit of the living God to show you, to point that out, to bring correction, to bring transformation and turn your way. God had a mighty plan for the church of Sardis. And the only thing that would prevent them from walking that purpose out to completion was their inability to truly turn from their ways and walk in the direction that God wanted for them. If the church failed to repent, Jesus said that he would come like a thief in the night. Now, I just want to stop and encourage all of us. This is not meant to be heavy or, you know, feeling like you're being beat with the word because repentance is a beautiful gift. Repentance should make us weep with gratitude and joy that we have the opportunity to come to our faithful father and ask for forgiveness, not with fear of, you know, being cast out or fear of judgment. We can boldly come before the Lord. First John says, if you are faithful to confess your sin, 
He is faithful and just to forgive you and cleanse you of all sin and unrighteousness. So repentance, we need to be preaching repentance. We need to be talking about it because it's not scary and it's not a bashing. It's a beautiful invitation for God to actually bring transformation to our life. And to the church of Sardis, if they failed to repent, he would come like a thief in the night. For the church of Sardis, there were actually still a faithful few who remained in the church and they had stayed true to Jesus. They had stayed alive. They had kept the fire burning and they weren't just about words, but they were words and work, action and deed. And they married up and they, they were you know consistent. And so Jesus specifically mentions these faithful as having unsoiled clothes. Now, many times throughout scripture, righteousness is expressed as a garment. One of the examples of this is in Isaiah 61 verse 10, and it says, I delight greatly in the Lord. My soul rejoices in my God, for he has clothed me with garments of salvation and arrayed me in a robe of his righteousness. And so God specifically mentions these faithful few in the church of Sardis that their clothes had not been soiled. Their righteousness had not been soiled. Sin is anything that gets between us and God. Sin is when we choose to live independent of God. It's when we live in a way that is um, dishonoring to God and we put things in our life that we hold above God. Sin is when we live and we walk in direct contradiction to what God has outlined for us in his word. And if we go all the way back to Adam and Eve, all the way back to the beginning, um, when they sinned, they realized one of the very first things that they realized was that they were naked. And this is not just a physical nakedness that they recognized, but spiritually as well. Remember, Adam and Eve were born in perfect communion with God. Scripture says that God would walk in the cool of the night with them in the garden. And like, what an amazing, incredible thought that is, that every night they would walk together and maybe, I don't know, talk about their day and just commune and have community and communion with each other. It's so beautiful. And they were able to do this because there was no sin. And sin is what separates us from God. And so when Adam and Eve sinned, they were not just physically naked. They didn't just um, recognize their physical nakedness, but spiritually, you know, we wear a garment of righteousness. I don't see it, but it is on me. And this is what allows me into the presence of God. And it's the righteousness of Christ. It's nothing that I've done. It's everything that he has done. And you can almost imagine for Adam and Eve, when they bit into that apple, when they chose independence, when they chose to kind of deviate from God and what he had asked, that robe fell off. And so not just were they physically naked, but they experienced a spiritual nakedness. They were no longer righteous and therefore could not come into the presence of God. Those in Sardis who had not defiled their garments walked in righteousness. Um, and this is righteousness in Christ. We, there is nothing we could ever do. There is nothing we could ever do that could make us right in the eyes of God. It is only because of Jesus and what he has done. And Jesus said that those who had remained faithful and unsoiled, they would walk with Jesus in garments of white. 
you know, walking. Walking speaks of closeness. It speaks of intimacy. It speaks of a friendship with God. And there are a few people in the Bible, actually, that we see. Um, scripture specifically says that they walked with God. Obviously, the first being Adam and Eve. And I mentioned before, it's like Genesis talks about how they would walk with God in the cool of the night. The second person I want to touch on is a man named Enoch. And there is literally one or two scriptures about Enoch in, in the Bible. And Genesis 5 verse 24, it says that Enoch walked with God until he was no more. This is an amazing, an amazing account. I cannot wait to, to better understand Enoch and his life when we get to heaven. But he was so close with God that God just took him. And it's amazing. And then we have Noah. And Noah was a righteous man. He was blameless before the Lord. And it says in Genesis 6 verse 9 that Noah walked with God. And then we also have Abraham. And Abraham was known as a friend of God. Abraham was by no means perfect, but Abraham was obedient to God and he was faithful to everything that God asked him. And it says in Genesis 17 verse 1, I am God Almighty, walk before me and be blameless. This is God inviting Abraham to walk with him, which is so beautiful. And I believe that God wants us to walk with him. He wants us to walk with him in intimacy and friendship. He wants us to walk closely with him. He is not a dictator. He is not a grumpy old man who sits in heaven just making life difficult for all of us. He is a good God. He came down in flesh and blood to be with us and to repair and restore relationship with him. And so he wants us to walk with him white garments. Remember, Jesus said to those who were unsoiled that um, they would walk with him in garments of white. So they would have intimacy and friendship with him in robes of white speaks of the ultimate triumph that we have in Jesus Christ. You know, Jesus says in each of these letters, he closes it by saying the very same thing. And I think that that in itself is something we need to heed and really you know, be aware of, but Jesus says, whoever has an ear to hear, let them hear what the Spirit says to the churches. Whoever hears this letter, whoever reads this letter, whoever has any kind of um, interaction with these letters, this letter is for you. Heed what it is saying. Understand what it is saying. Apply it to your life. And so for us, if we are living our life in a way of one thing on the outside, a totally different thing on the inside. We need to heed what Jesus is saying to the church of Sardis. We need to wake up. We need to remember and we need to repent. Hear what Jesus is saying. Hear what Jesus is saying. I have walked with the Lord all my life. I was raised in a Christian home. I have been to church my whole life. I have had to make a decision for myself to receive Jesus as my Lord and Savior. But I have loved him my whole life. And I would be the first to say that it is very easy as a believer to drift into apathy. It is very easy to die inside while the outside still looks good. And so we need to first be honest with ourselves and we need to be honest with the Lord. And if you feel like that is you, or if you feel like that could be you, that you are drifting into apathy, speak up. Can I encourage you to first and foremostly go to the Lord? 
Lay all your cares at his feet. Be honest with him. Spend time with him. Meditate on his word. Allow him to come into you, into your heart and start to change things up. But also be accountable to someone. And this is why the local church is the most amazing, amazing thing that God could have ever instituted was the church because it's in church that we find accountability. It's in church that we find community. And so find someone that you trust, find someone that you can confide in and ask them to actually keep you accountable and help, ask them to help you on your journey as you journey with the Holy Spirit. So the promise Jesus always gives a promise. In each of the letters, he gives a promise to those who overcome. So if the church of Sardis would wake up, remember, repent, and actually come alive again on the inside, Jesus says that they will be given eternal life. He says that their names will not be blocked from the book of life. The overcomer can have assurance that their name will be found in the book and that Jesus will acknowledge them before the Father. What an incredible honor. What an incredible honor. To the overcomer, your name will be found in the book of life and Jesus will acknowledge you before his Father. This begs the question, and we won't go into this, but maybe this is something that you can kind of think on in your own time, but this begs the question, can your name be blotted out from the book? Can you lose your salvation? This is a, a hot topic in and of itself and probably would need hours to really unpack and look at, but can you lose your salvation? Because Jesus specifically says to the church of Sardis that their names would not be blocked out, kind of giving the impression that their names are there, but can be taken away. So the book of life is actually a real book. It is a book which will be opened and read on the day of judgment. You can read about that in Revelation verse, um, 20 verse 12. And it is the book, the one that determines where we spend our eternity. If your name is found in the book of life, that means that you have received Jesus as your personal Lord and Savior, that you have lived with him as your Lord, not just the one who saved you, but he, your Lord. That means that you give all right and responsibility to Jesus for your life. You allow him to call the shots. You allow him to lead and direct you. Um, if you have not received Jesus as your personal Lord and Savior, if, you've, if you have not received Jesus, if you have rejected him, you will not spend eternity with the Father. The mention that names can be blotted out implies that there are some that by appearance are saved, by appearance are saved, but that they won't be in heaven. This is heartbreaking. This is absolutely heartbreaking that many have the appearance of salvation with never having actually received salvation. It's easy to look the part. It's easy to do the things, walk the walk, talk the talk, but that means nothing if we have not received Jesus Christ as our personal Lord and Savior. One of the one of the most heartbreaking things that Jesus says, I believe in, well, for me, one of the most heartbreaking things that Jesus says in the Gospels is in Matthew 7 and verse 21. It says, not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but only the one who does the will of my Father who is in heaven. Many will say to me on that day, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name? 
and in your name drive out demons and in your name perform many miracles, then I will tell them plainly, I never knew you. Away with me. It is so important that we not just do what we think is right to do, but that we invite Jesus into our lives, allow him to completely take over, be transformed by his word and through his spirit. We give him lordship of our lives. He's not just my savior. Thanks for rescuing me. He is my savior and my Lord. I now give you everything. You know, Paul often, when he opened a letter, when he wrote in the epistles, he would say, a bond servant of Christ. A bond servant was someone who had earned their, their, their freedom but was so loyal to their master that they actually stayed. And this is so fitting for us. We are free. Jesus has freed us. He has redeemed us. He has restored us. But I don't want to go anywhere without him. So even though I have my freedom, I am completely enslaved to Jesus. Willingly. I willingly put myself in that spot. A bond servant was a willing thing. And so, um, yeah. That is just, I know, a heavy, a heavy little thought, a big thought, actually, a heavy, big thought. But let's not just be ones who look the part, say the right words, do the right things, but have never actually let him come into our hearts, invited him in as our personal Lord and Savior. I know that this is a heavy letter, but as we finish, I just want to say that in the same way that Jesus said to the church of Sardis, there is still more for you to do. So I pray that you would receive this not as a rebuke and a, a sense of hopelessness. I, I actually pray that hopelessness would not wash over anyone who hears this message, but that instead you would be filled with hope. That maybe you have lived your life, to, till this point, you have maybe lived your life with a bit of apathy. Maybe you have lived your life in a way of ticking the boxes. I go to church, I sometimes read my Bible, I sometimes pray when I remember, but I'm really just ticking the boxes. Whether you feel that way or you feel apathetic, whether you feel like you're just done, there's just, I'm done. I just want to encourage you in the same way that Jesus encouraged the church of Sardis. While there is breath, there is life. And while there is life, there is hope. I know that God has purposefully created each one of us. Each one of us are created for his purpose. And until we die, until we are very much gone, um, there are still things for us to achieve and accomplish in Christ. And I pray that if nothing else, this letter would encourage you to go back to your first love. Go back, remember what it was like. Remember, I pray that even as you're listening to, listening to this, God would remind you of dormant dreams. He would remind you of dormant promises. And instead of being discouraged because the promise has taken a while, I pray that you would be encouraged and that you would just believe, believe that God is faithful, that he can be trusted, that he is loyal. And in the same way that he wanted to use Sardis to the very end, so he wants to use your life to the very end. This is not a letter of rebuke and hopelessness. This is a letter of hope and that, you know, we should be encouraged and inspired that there is more for us, that God has more for us. He wants to do more in us and through us. And so I pray that you would go back, go back to the Lord, 
Sit down with a journal. Sit down with your, with your Bible and allow the Holy Spirit. Remember the Spirit of the Lord, the Spirit of wisdom, the Spirit of counsel, the Spirit of knowledge, the Spirit of understanding. Allow Him to speak. Allow Him to guide. Allow Him to direct you. Because I believe that we are in a season where God is going to literally raise dead bones to life again where you have thought that that is over, you have thought that that is dead, you have thought that we just need to bury that and God is about to breathe fresh life into dreams, fresh life into promises and that we will be known as those who overcome and we would experience eternity and eternal life with him in Jesus' name, amen. I pray that you would feel encouraged by this letter. I pray that these letters have encouraged you and that you feel stirred up in your spirit and stirred up in faith to continue the good thing that God has started in you. I pray that you would feel um, just relentless in your pursuit of God relentless in your pursuit of him you know more than the things that God can do for us more than the things that we want from him the greatest reward is Jesus himself he is not a tease he is not playing games with us he wants to be known by us and he wants to have intimacy and friendship with us so I pray that that is what you would pursue if you have been blessed by this letter or any of the letters, we I would love to hear from you. I would love to hear what God has been speaking to you about, what he has been sharing with you and, and doing in your life. Um, please feel free to reach out on our website. You can connect with us via email or you can, um, you know, DM on Instagram, or if you're watching this on YouTube, I'm going to put the email address up. Please send us an email of what God is doing in you. What is he speaking to you about? How are you being stirred? How are you being challenged? How are you allowing God to breathe freshness into your life? Until the next letter, the letter of Philadelphia, I pray that you would be blessed and that God would be doing mighty things in and through you. Amen.